With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I have back Brian Silliman. Brian is a partner at Hughes Hubbard and heads the firm's Harris office. We take up a couple of articles that Brian has recently authored. In this episode, I have back with me Erica Selman Byrne. She is the EVP at Ethisphere. We talk about the Ethisphere 2021 World's Most Ethical Company designations, and we take a deep dive into three papers based upon the data from this uh, survey, leading practices in remotely managing global uh, programs, third-party risk management, and training and communications. It's a great episode with lots of information packed into it. I'm going to link to all of these reports in the show notes, so be sure and check them out. Also, listen at the end for a discount to the 2021 Global Ethics Summit, which we put on by Ethisphere. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Erica Salmon Byrne. She is with Ethisphere, and we're here to talk about the annual Ethisphere World's Most Ethical Company Awards this year for 2021. Erica, first of all, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom. It's always a pleasure chatting with you about my favorite topic. Could you uh, remind our audience your role with Ethisphere? Absolutely. So I serve as the um, EVP of the data and services business here at Ethisphere. Um, that means I'm responsible for the team. That does all of our data-driven insights work. I also serve as the chair of our Business Ethics Leadership Alliance, which is, of course, the group that will largely be gathering in a couple of weeks virtually um, for our Global Ethics Summit. If we could just jump right into the report uh, with yeah. the, the numbers, and uh, I always love the ethical premium. What did you guys do <laughs> this year? Um, yeah, so this year's uh, class of world's most ethical companies, we had 135 companies on the list. Um, those companies re- uh, represented 47 industries, and this year, 22 countries. Last year, we were 21. This year, we're 22. Um, and really kind of all over the map in terms of size of organization, uh, scope of revenue, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, ethics premium, which for those of your listeners who are not as familiar with that, um, is an analysis that we do every year of this, uh, the stock performance of the publicly traded companies that are on our list. Obviously, we can't uh, do a a financial analysis of the private companies, and there are certainly private companies on the list. But for the publicly traded companies, um, this year's five-year ethics premium was 7.1%. So that means that the companies that comprised our list over the course of the last five years outperformed uh, the large, ca- the comparable large cap indices by 7.1%. So the ethics premium continues strong, Tom. That's uh, 15 years worth of analysis we've done. And every year there's a degree of outperformance. It sure seems like a great investment. <laughs> so what um, could you remind us again, the methodology behind how you guys uh, calculate this? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and there were a lot of changes this year uh, for the for the companies that went through the process. Um, you all know that there were a lot of changes this year. So, the way the process works is companies that are interested in applying uh, fill out what we call our ethics quotient questionnaire. We've changed the survey every year. Um, we do so with the assistance of our methodology committee. Many of the folks on the methodology committee will be familiar to your listeners. Um, they are kind enough to grant us a little bit of their time so that they can walk through the survey from their expertise and help us make sure we're still continuing to codify leading practices. Um, this year's survey was, uh, depending on the skip logic, somewhere between 207 and 210 questions. We did uh, add a lot about um, covid related protocols. So to the extent you changed your communication plans for COVID, to the extent you changed your training plans, you know, we wanted to try to capture some of what companies have gone through over the course of the pandemic year. Um, but you fill out the questionnaire and then uh, those answers are scored. Um, they're they're auto scored based on the answers that you choose. And then you submit documentation to the review team that helps us uh, validate uh, the practices that you reflected in over the course of the survey responses. Team reviews all of that adjust scores as necessary based on the strength of the documentation you provided. And then we compare your performance by industry and that performance then allows us to decide who ends up on the list. Some of the changes that you would have seen in the survey this year, in addition to the COVID piece, um, we completely rewrote our traditional sustainability and corporate social responsibility section to really reflect the work that companies are now doing around ESG. So that section is now called impact. Um, we also put a lot of weight on the quality of your ethics and compliance program. It's about 35% of your score. Um, corporate governance is 20%. Uh, we, of course, look at your culture work. So how are you thinking about and supporting your culture of ethics um, and then leadership and reputation? So it's a huge lift on our side. Months of work. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I still hear people say that it's worth just going through the process mm -hmm. to apply. And even if they don't get the award the first time, uh, the rigor that you guys require around that is really become an industry benchmark. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm delighted to hear that because it's certainly the way we feel about it. Um, we have, we have, I actually have a lot of people who tell me, I don't even actually go through the application process. I just look at the survey. Just looking at the survey is enough for me to know kind of where I am from a practice perspective, um, which is great. But yeah, no, it's, you know, we, we're, we, we take very seriously the amount of work that companies put into applying. And if you do apply, you get a scorecard that shows you kind of where your, your primary gaps were. Um, so there is a, a definite focus on our side, you know, trying to help companies improve. So what are some of the big picture items or numbers or even big picture tickets that uh, you and your team have drawn from this year's WME? So there are a couple of things that I wanted to highlight for your listeners, Tom, and, and we're going to be coming out with a series of reports over the course of the spring. So our, our big annual conference will be virtual this year. That's, of course, our Global Ethics Summit. We'll be talking a lot about the data that we got from the process there. Um, and then over the course of the spring, we'll be, as we historically do, uh, issuing a series of reports, uh, sharing some of the insights that we get from the process. But I wanted to highlight three things um, for your listeners today. One is uh, we added a new question this year uh, to the survey around the practices that an organization goes through to onboard a new director and which of the control functions um, would a new director meet with as part of that process. Um, we gave, you know, the traditional uh, answer options, legal, finance, HR, and of course, ethics and compliance, internal audit, et cetera. Um, and ethics and the companies who responded indicated that 84% of them said that their new directors would meet with the ethics and compliance team. 
And I think that is a really strong number. I'd like to see it in the 90s, quite honestly. Um, you know, for some companies, they haven't onboarded a new director, so it hasn't it hasn't been a, an issue for them. But as companies continue to think about their director makeup, as companies are continuing to push on the diversity on their board, as companies are continuing to bring new directors on, really thinking seriously about which of the control functions are strategically important for a director to meet with um, is something we're strongly encouraging companies to do. And that 84% was really encouraging to me. Um, especially since it's a brand new question. We also asked uh, a series of questions about uh, liaison programs. I think, you know, as we think about the COVID experience and some of the things that we're going to take away from the COVID experience, one of them is you can't be you know, all, all, in all places at all times, right? Um, I think a lot of compliance teams felt the limitations of their staffing uh, pretty strongly. And so we have seen companies uh, increasingly be interested in establishing effective liaison programs, what does it take to have an effective liaison program? Who should be in my liaison program? And so we asked a series of questions about that. Um, and we'll be talking a lot about that over the course of the spring. It's a way, essentially, of, um, of co-opting other functions um, to be your voice and your messenger uh, in, a, in a very effective way. And also, one of the things we saw a couple companies doing from a practical perspective is using the liaison program as a way of identifying or um, uh, celebrating high potential lower level employees. So if you have someone who is already sort of seen as a rising star in the company, get that person in your liaison program, right? As fast as possible. Because if you have that person in your liaison program, then you're essentially getting them um, uh, incorporated into or included in what you are trying to accomplish as part of the business. And and it's uh, it's as they continue to move their way up, um, they they become a very effective ambassador for the ethics and compliance team. So you said three. I wrote down the yep. onboarding liaison program. What's number three? Um, so number three is uh, the the ways in which companies got very creative during the pandemic about communicating with employees. Um, and this is one that I strongly encourage people don't let go of. Right. I mean, we saw so many innovative practices um, during the course of the pandemic, short form video you know, things that aren't super overproduced, just, you know, really, really quick and easy ways of trying to engage an audience using different messengers, using different modalities. Don't go back to email, right? Don't, just don't do it. <laughs> stay with stay with the stuff that you have found works in this environment because it's going to work in whatever comes next, right? We're not all going to suddenly go back to, you know, December of 2019. It's not, that's not the way this is going to finish itself out, right? We're going to have a hybrid component piece. We're going to have a, a part of time where you've still got managers who are managing people remotely. We've figured out some things that worked. We figured out some things that didn't work. Um, and let's let's really hold on to those. So that's the other thing is, you know, we saw a lot of great examples of, you know, augmented reality enabled training and short form video and, you know, really innovative um, uh, attempts at communicating and connecting to employees. And I hope those continue. Erica, as valuable as the uh, report is and the information is, it's only just uh, really a small part of the information Ethosphere puts out around the WME. And so I'd like to, if I could turn uh, now turn to the leading practice guides that are yep. available on the Ethosphere website that you use or derive from the information from this year's report and start with remotely managing an effective global compliance program. Um, and what did you guys find around who a CECO should report to? 
it's the perennial question, isn't it, Tom? Right? Um, you know, it's and and so the, the the version of the report that you'll all find on the website is actually the data from last year's World's Most Ethical Companies class. We continue to make those reports available even as we're working on the new ones. So the new ones will be out um, in May May and June. Um, but the one that you'll find on the website right now uh, outlines some data from last year, and we continue to see this, these trends. So um, a, a little bit more than half of the companies in the data set say that their compliance team is part of the legal department. Um, but we also saw a increase in the number of people who said that the person who's running the program cannot be fired without the board knowing, right? So from our perspective, once you get outside of the highly regulated spaces, we see a real variation in where the, the program sits, but we often see the program sitting in legal um, and administratively reporting to the general counsel, which, you know, I think we could have an interesting conversation, Tom, about whether or not that's that's a, a good setup. Um, it's certainly a conversation that the compliance space has been having for two decades, um, but it continues to subsist as a setup. That said, what we look for is what are the indicia that we have that the function is autonomous, right? Um, and the government's looking at this too, right? We saw this in the DOJ guidance that came out in June of 2020. So can the CECO be fired without the board knowing? Who does the performance evaluation of the, the person um, who is serving as the CECO? Um, who decides what they get paid, right? Those are some of the, the questions that we ask as part of the process. And we ask those questions because aside from what the org chart says, those are some of the things that give us a little bit of an indication as to whether or not the function is truly independent. And at the end of the day, that's really what, what everybody's looking for is, is, you know, is this a function that, like audit, could take uh, misconduct directly to the board as needed um, without having to filter through somebody else? So, no. Is, do, they, do you sit in executive session with the committee chair or with the, the committee, rather? Uh, do you have regular telephonic conversations with the committee chair? Those are the kinds of questions we ask. Um, and those are, that's some of the data we'll be coming out with later this spring. Erica, there was uh, some interesting information around mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And I had thought the DOJ made clear uh, compliance needs to step up in that role. But it was not clear to me from the numbers whether that message is really percolated down as much as it needs to. And what did you guys find? Yeah, no, it still needs to percolate further, Tom, without question. Um, we saw some some practices, you know, and so in 2020, um, we saw that 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 a lot of um, compliance programs were involved in mergers and acquisitions related uh, conversations. Um, we saw that trend continue. It's a couple a couple percentage points higher this year than it was last year. But at the same time, it's still not where it needs to be. Right. If you are a company that is engaging in M&A activity and you are not looking at whether or not you, you are buying a problem from a compliance and ethics perspective, um, then you're really not discharging your responsibilities uh, as far as we're concerned or as far as the government's concerned. The DOJ guidance, the June 2020 guidance made it very clear um, that, that compliance needs to have a role. Now, the challenge is, right, what does that mean? Does that mean that you need a compliance person on the diligence team? Does that mean that you need a compliance checklist as part of the diligence process? Does that just mean that you've got a compliance person who's looking at what's in the data room? Every company has got to figure that out for themselves, depending on their risk profile and how much M&A they're doing. But I will tell you that the best companies that we look at have a member of the compliance and ethics team on the diligence team process. We actually wrote a playbook on this in the Bella community um, because we got so many questions about how to do M&A effectively. We went out to Bella members that do a lot of it and do it well, and we wrote a playbook of here's what you think about pre-acquisition, here's what you think about post-acquisition. And we looked at things like, you know, what do your checklists look like? Who's involved in the diligence team? 
um, what does your post integration plan uh, consist of? Because, you know, if, if you are a compliance officer and the first you learn about a new acquisition is the day the announcement goes out that it's closed, um, you know, then, then you've got a lot of work to do. You spoke about employee liaisons a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask mm-hmm. in this uh, specific report of leading practices, what did you see uh, around best practices for how an employee liaison is used, particularly outside the United States? Yep. It's a good question, Tom, and it's especially a good question as people, you know, kind of think about how they're structuring those programs. So the one of the things that we saw is um, is the onboarding, the selection and onboarding process, right? So you want to have a job description. What does the liaison do? Um, equally importantly, what does a liaison not do, right? So these are not people you're asking to do investigations. Um, these are people who are serving as sort of ambassadors and ombuds, not ombuds, but ambassadors for the program. Um, so making sure you have a job description of, of what's involved in being a liaison. Second piece of it is really making sure that you understand how to communicate effectively with your liaisons. Do they know each other? as an example, right? Do you have a Teams site or SharePoint or whatever your, you know, sort of collaboration software of choice is? Do you have a place they can all go to get the materials that they need? How are you making sure they're doing their job, right? What does follow-up look like? How often are you checking in with them? What's a rotation schedule? You don't want necessarily somebody to be an ambassador forever. You know, you are asking them to do this as part of their job description, you know, kind of on top of their day job. So you want to think about rotation, you want to think about succession. What's your next class of, of ambassadors going to look like? Um, and then uh, you, want to, you want to really think about how am I incentivizing participation in the program? Is it part of their performance evaluation? Is it something their manager gets credit, gives them credit for? Is it part of becoming a high potential or, you know, it's sort of a process of hypo development, high potential employee development? Um, those are some of the, the, the key things that you want to look at when you think about the design of your liaison program to really make sure that you're doing something that is meaningful that the ambassadors would say is meaningful um, and that, that, you know, is having the kind of impact that you want it to have. What does this year's report show around best practices in the area of incentives in a compliance program? Yeah, it's a good question because um, I think people have really been trying to figure this one out for a while. So there are a couple of trends that we saw. Um, one is increasingly managers are being asked to um, make sure that their employees uh, discharge all of their compliance responsibilities, right? So whether that's uh, timely disclosure of conflicts of interest, um, timely processing of pre-approvals. Well, less. I, I was going to say on gifts and entertainment, but none of us are entertaining or gifting, so you know, <laughs> a little bit less, a little bit less of uh, of, a, of a, an issue this past year. Um, but you know, certainly for sure on your your pre-approval and then training, right? So increasingly seeing that managers are being asked to be responsible for their employees completing their training obligations on time, as opposed to the compliance and ethics team uh, incessantly chasing people with na- increasingly nasty emails, right? Which has you know been the way that a lot of these things have worked in the past. So thinking really long and hard about that aspect of it and, and what does, you know, what does, what does a manager set of responsibilities look like? Um, we're seeing a lot of thank you programs. So, um, you know, if you have an employee program where that allows employees to thank each other, uh, making the ethics piece of it part of that. So, you know, a manager having the opportunity to thank an employee for handling a particularly challenging client who was asking for a kickback, you know, and disclosing it properly, um, making it possible to publicly celebrate the people who are making the right choices. So, you know, if I had to pick a theme, Tom, I would say that's the place we've seen a lot of companies focusing is um, let's find the people who are making the right choices. Let's find the people who are doing the right things and let's figure out how to celebrate them effectively. 
I have only in a handful of cases seen what I will consider to be really effective metrics on a performance evaluation around ethical behavior, right? Um, Most of what I have seen is incredibly subjective. And most managers, when you talk to them, say, you know, of course, all my people are good people. So I'm going to rank them a five or whatever the highest number is on, you know, doing the right, the doing the right thing category. You have to give managers really, really specific guidance about what doing the right thing looks like if you want to try to incorporate that in the performance evaluation process. And it's a big challenge without question. Like we haven't really figured that piece of it out yet. So looking at metrics, looking at measurable things, speed to completion of training is a, you know, is, is one metric that I've seen companies using. Um, what is the team that gets all their training done fastest? Um, as an indication of how seriously they take their compliance obligations. Um, so think about what the things are that you can really measure um, to take some subjectivity out of it if you're trying to design that kind of a program. The second leading practice guide was around the uh, continuing bugaboo of third parties. And um, yeah. you re- uh, you had a section on onboarding and due diligence. And I guess I have to ask, why is this even still an issue? And what, what did the numbers show you this year? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, we, we've been talking a lot about this internally in terms of why this is still an issue. And, you know, I think it's, I think a big part of it, honestly, Tom, is, is, is the crusade that I'm going to be on this year and the rest of probably the rest of my career, which is breaking down the silos, right? Um, you know, the, the, incre- the, the, the burden on third parties is tremendous. And it's largely because no one is consolidating and coordinating their diligence processes, right? So really, a third party ought to, you know, if, if you're a company that deals with a lot of third parties, you should know what, you know, what is finance asking? What is um, uh, the, the sustainability and ESG team asking? Who's, respond, who's asking questions about modern slavery? Um, you know, what are the, what are the key risks that, that, that we're concerned about as a business? And approaching it, in a, in a holistic fashion, right? So that we're really saying, this is the complete compilation of what we care about in our third-party relationships. And in a lot of companies, that level of coordination just doesn't exist, right? You've got one thing coming out from finance, you've got something else coming out from sustainability. If anybody's asking about, you know, the, the environmental piece, that's coming from a different part of the business. So how do you really get all of these, these, these pieces together and figure out who has to answer what, right? So starting with risks and all, all of those kinds of things. And I think I think that's part of it, right? And I also think part of it is that, you know, so many people are just so scared to have missed something that they they want all their questions in. And um and so that's that's I think part of the reason why this continues to be a challenge. And you know, from a supplier perspective, you know, if you're answering 50 of these a quarter, that's a tremendous work lift, right? In terms of the amount of, of work you're asking suppliers to put into these issues. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pain point from both sides. It's a pain point on the buyer side and it's a pain point on the supplier side. Uh, I have always advocated that after you do your due diligence and other steps, get a contract signed, that's when the real work starts. Mm-hmm. Because you have to manage that relationship going forward. What did you guys see in both in terms of managing the relationship after the contract signed and maybe some best practices around engagement with third parties. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from an engagement with third parties perspective, we were really hardened to see the number of companies that are very focused on how do I take some of what I've learned to do well to build capacity in the value chain, 
right? So we saw a lot of companies who are taking their training to some of their key third parties. If they're you know, delivering training to their employees in the region, they're inviting some of their you know key third party contacts to be a part of that training process. Lots of companies who are making some of their reporting functionality available to their third parties. Um, lots of companies who are, and this isn't, of course, all third parties, right? You know, you have to determine sort of your risk profile and who matters to you. But, you know, really thinking about how do I, how do I increase the ability of the third party I'm working with to, to follow the contract terms they've agreed to, right? Because we all know the contract terms are one thing, but the reputational damage is done by the time you're trying to, to you know, get after your indemnification provisions, um, so if you have to go down that road, you know, you've already sustained a fair amount of damage. And so the better thing is, how do I make sure that these third parties are actually capable of doing what I've asked them to do in the first place? Um, and that's something that we've spent, we've been spending a lot of time, you know, looking at from a, from a, uh, practices perspective. And I'm heartened by the number of companies that are regularly incorporating that into their process. From a, a frequency perspective, you know, we see a lot of companies who are redoing elements of due diligence on contract renewal, um, which is great. So, you know, you don't wind up entering into an agreement with somebody and then 15 years later you look up and they're on their fifth owner and their fifth owner happens to be the prince of, you know, fill in the blank risky country. Right. Um, So really, you know, thinking about redoing that diligence and making sure you're staying on top of the risks and doing it on contract renewal. Um, A lot of companies working very closely with the business owner of the relationship to make sure that they understand the risks that the relationship might potentially be causing um, to the company and can be a, an issue spotter for the compliance and ethics team. Those are some of the practices we saw that, that really heartened me in this area. What about in the area of auditing and more importantly, monitoring of third parties? Mm-hmm. So um, auditing has not advanced tremendously, um, particularly not in 2020. Not surprisingly, it's, you know, because none of us were doing on-the-ground audits um, in most countries. So uh, auditing stayed pretty flat. Monitoring, however, has come a long way, um, particularly with some of the technology that's now available. So, you know, thinking about how do I keep, how do I keep my, um, you know, how do, how do I keep a remote eye on the activities with third parties? So maybe you're transaction monitoring, um, you know, maybe you're looking at, um, uh, 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 Reseller contract levels, you know, we've worked with a couple of companies who are using um, contract volume monitoring to keep an eye on some of their resellers and distributors in foreign countries. So the technology is really is starting to enable some very exciting advancements on the monitoring side. And for those companies who do a lot of work with third parties who are not thinking about things like um, round dollar uh, red flags. Right. So if somebody if somebody is submitting a contract that is fully in round dollar that gets you know, that that gets flagged for a second level of review um, or invoice rather, you know, that's fully round dollar that gets flagged for a second level of review or same, same invoice level for multiple, you know, you multiple uh, months in a row. If you know, you're not on a retainer that would get flagged for a second level of review. So that kind of monitoring is increasingly being enabled by the technology. Um, and that's a really exciting thing to see. The third of the trilogy of leading practice guides is around training and communications. Yep. And you gave us some thoughts a little bit earlier on uh, the types of communications you should use and, uh, more importantly, not use. But I was wondering <laughs> if we might, uh, if you might be able to relate about building out an entire effective compliance training program and what the numbers showed you uh, that some of the top companies are doing. 
Yep. Um, yeah, it was certainly an area that companies spent a lot of time thinking about this past year because, you know, all of a sudden we found ourselves in a very different set of circumstances in terms of, of where employees were. Uh, and we saw some great stuff out of companies. And I think the most exciting thing to me that we saw is um, a real focus on what the uh, the academic research tells us about how people learn. Um, and so, you know, instead of instead of what I would like to what I have historically called a trainer at the center training, right? So what, you know, as the compliance officer, what are the things that I need people to understand? Instead saying, okay, employee at the center training, what knowledge am I trying to transfer? And how do I really do that effectively for this particular audience? So things like um, surveys embedded into your learning management system that uh, help to auto-assign courses, right, Was is, is one thing we've seen companies doing. So instead of relying on job codes, to figure out whether or not somebody needs a particular training course. Instead, you ask them a series of questions at the front end when they create their training profile. That training profile for the year then figures out which particular courses they need to complete in a given year. So you're really capturing people based on what they say they're doing for a living as opposed to what multiple HRISs might tell you they're doing. Um, Pairing of training and communications. Again, this goes to what the research has shown us over the years in terms of how people learn. So, you know, pairing a a training activity with a communication activity so that you're really having this kind of ongoing dialogue with your employees that is uh, that is reinforcing the messaging you need them to hear. And then the third one I'd point uh, your listeners to, Tom, is what I like to call just-in-time training. So thinking about systematic triggers that happen in other parts of the business that would indicate that somebody needs a reminder on a particular topic. So you know, the easiest example of this used to be the travel the travel system. You know, if you used a corporate travel system to book travel, um, you would get your immunization reminders, you would get your reminder to take a clean laptop, and you would get your 15-minute gifts and entertainment when you're in India reminder, you know, training course. Um, so that, again, that is sort of delivering information to the employee in the moment that they need it, as opposed to assuming that somebody's going to remember something they heard in a 57-page PowerPoint presentation six months ago. The uh, originally I had asked you, uh, written down a question to ask you about manager slash gatekeeper training. But the more I thought about it, those may be actually different types of training. And so I wanted to pose it whichever way you thought was correct. But I'd really like you to focus on managers and gatekeepers. Yeah. So manager training, Tom, is something we rewrote a giant section of the training communication section of the survey this year to specifically focus on manager training. And we did that because what our culture work has shown us, you know, we've been doing a ton of culture survey work over the course of the last four and a half years for companies. Um, And what our culture work has shown us is the manager is the fulcrum around which everything else swings. If your manager is a good ethical leader and is keeping an open door and you're comfortable going to them with questions, you are two times more likely to speak up you are six times more likely to take an issue to your manager, right? There's all kinds of data showing that the manager is central to the functioning of the the culture inside an organization. And yet we as companies have historically done such a bad job preparing managers to manage, right? You know, most people who get promoted to be a manager get promoted because they were good at doing that the last job they were doing, right? They did not get promoted because they knew how to manage people. And we don't always then really train them on how to do that, right? They get a training on how to use the performance evaluation system and how to approve an expense report and how to approve a time off request, but how to keep an open door, right? How to, to, to accept information that may not be positive with an attitude of gratitude and then take action on it. We, we have historically done a bad job of, of those kinds of things. And so this year we focused very specifically on 
how are you prepping managers to be good ethical leaders? Um, and we got some really, really interesting results. Um, fortunately, a majority of companies are dedicating some time to this. Um, many of them are still, in, still embedding it in uh, mandatory sexual harassment training. And the challenge with doing that is the context, right? If you are training a manager on how to hear an employee complaint in the context of harassment training, then they're going to hear that information in the context of harassment. And then if I come to you, Tom, as my manager, not with a harassment issue, but because I'd like to hire my cousin, right? You're not, or you're not automatically going to port those skills over so that, you know, I'm, you're using them in that context as opposed to in the harassment context. Also, quite frankly, some of the mandatory sexual harassment training is the kind of thing that people don't really want to take. And so if you're trying to engage in a conversation about being a good ethical leader, that may not be the best place to put your training if you're asking people to sit through something that's two hours long, you know, it may be something that gets lost in the in the message. So the good news is companies are thinking about it. The bad news is not everybody's putting it in the place where it's going to be best received. Um, but I anticipate that this will be an area companies continue to focus on. One of the single uh, biggest questions or largest number of questions I get around compliance programs is how do you measure the effectiveness of training? And, and you guys... Uh, I thought took a great approach because you you listed multiple methods that companies use, some singular, some in, in concert with each other. So I was wondering if you could give a few thoughts on measuring the effectiveness of training. Yeah. And, and what I like best, Tom, that companies are doing right now is taking advantage of some of the technological capabilities that exist that didn't exist four or five years ago to really be layering multiple data points and dashboarding. Right. So you might say, all right, I'm going to take, um, uh, you know, there's 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 obviously the, the completion of the training, but I'm going to take policy click metrics. I'm going to layer those with um, uh, questions that come into managers or questions that come. You know, if you've got a an ask compliance email address, um, if you've got an employee uh, functionality that allows employees to surface questions. I'm going to ask questions in that context. I'm going to layer in, um, you know, some other data that I'm getting from other parts of the system, like timeliness of expense report completion, or you know, what, whatever data is available to you out there. Layering those things on top of each other to be able to say, okay, in this particular part of the business, this is this is a group of employees who are just not getting it. Right. The other thing that we're seeing increasingly is companies asking. Asking in focus groups, right? Asking in surveys, asking in um, pulse surveys, right? There's all these different ways we're engaging employees these days, and there's no reason why you can't just ask, right? Hey, what did you think of that training? Did you find it effective? Do you remember anything I said? Um, those are, you know, so at the end of the day, the, the point of training is to be transferring knowledge to the employee. And so whatever metrics you can get at that get you, give you a sense of whether or not the employees are engaged with the material and retaining it, um, those are the ways you're going to be able to tell whether any of it's working. Eric, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but you gave you talked uh, gave us one term that some of our listeners may not know what it means, and that's uh, the Bela community. Could you say a few words about Bela, what it is, and how you and your Bela family use that community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so so uh, it's it's probably my, my favorite part of my job, honestly. Um, it's a group of companies who have come together uh, to share best practices and try to really lift all boats. And so um, we are now about 350 multinationals uh, that are part of the community. Um, we are uh, all over the globe. 
um, we've got a South Asia chapter, we've got an Asia PAC chapter, we're holding events in uh, continental Europe, we've got events going on in, in the UK, all virtual, of course. Um, but really, it's it's the idea is that the uh, this is a group of, of compliance officers who have come together because there is no competition in compliance. Um, and we do research uh, uh, for the community. So that M&A playbook that I mentioned that we did um, is just one example of the ways in which we support the work of the community. And then the probably the, the number one thing that our community members value the most is the opportunity to benchmark. So we benchmark using our data set. We benchmark against each other. We benchmark doing uh, ind- independent research projects. So, you know, Tom, we, we didn't touch on investigations, um, but obviously during the course of 2020, we spent a lot of time talking to companies about how they're doing effective remote investigations, how they're really empowering people in country to do investigations, who those folks might be, how they're tracking, um, and you know what they're seeing in terms of trends and investigation reporting numbers going down. So all of those pieces are things, are ways in which we support the work of the kinds of companies um, that are really looking to elevate the, the effectiveness of their programs. Okay, if anyone wanted any more information on any of the reports we've talked about or the 2021 WME and the upcoming uh, conference, uh, where could they go? So um, for the upcoming conference, go. you can uh, look online for the Global Ethics Summit 2021. Anybody listening who is interested in registering for the conference that is coming in because of you, the fact that you follow Tom, you can use TomFox15 as a discount code for the GES. Um, we are going to have over 60 hours of content. It's going to be the 13th, 14th, and 15th of April. It's all virtual, of course, um, as everything is right now. Everything will be on demand and available for play after the fact. So if you miss something, you can always come back. Um, Some of the panels I'm really looking forward to, Tom, we've got a behavioral science, uh, what to know from behavioral science in the context of the compliance program. So we're going to be hearing from some cognitive psychologists and other people who are coming from the behavioral sciences side who are going to talk to a compliance community about how to use those insights to really more effectively communicate with employees We're going to be talking a lot about ESG and how it uh, uh, intersects with the ethics and compliance program. Um, The number one leading uh, uh, topic right now in our little um, uh, March Madness style head to header is uh, measuring ethical culture. So we're going to be talking a lot about culture and how you measure it and then what you do with it once you have your metrics. So um, definitely check out the GES. We're all super excited about it, as you can probably tell. Um, For World's Most Ethical Companies, you can go to worldsmostethicalcompanies.com. That will have the reports. It'll have the insights on this year's uh, uh, WME class. And then, of course, next year's process opens in August. So if you are a company who's interested in potentially exploring that, you can keep an eye on our website for the launch of uh, next year's WME process uh, a little bit later in the summer. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at eSalmonBurn if anybody wants to follow what we're up to. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's just, it's a really exciting time to be in the space, Tom. There's, there's so much intersection that's happening right now, whether you look at what communications is telling us about how to effectively engage employees or what the technology is enabling us to do in terms of finding the folks who need help. Um, you and I have both been in this space for a long time, and I would say it's, a, it's, a, it's the best time to be a compliance officer from my perspective. You know, the only thing I would say is that every time we visit, it's the best time. <laughs> That's why this is such a great profession. <laughs> Absolutely. Erica, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, This is a great report. It's of huge help to the entire community, and I'm looking forward to the GES this year. Great. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. 
I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As Erica noted, listeners to this podcast can get a discount to Ethosphere's 2021 Global Ethics Summit. Enter the code TOMFOX15 for a 15% discount. Also, go to the Ethosphere site and check out the 2021 World's Most Ethical Companies Awards and the reports that we talked about during this podcast. I'm going to link to all of those in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week on the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.